I had this thought as soon as I heard them mention the Rippers. How incredible would it have been if Hulk Hogan's no-holds-barred character was their leader? <laughs> like it would be insane, but would it be any less insane than the rest of this movie? <laughs> um, I mean, yes, that would have been pretty hilarious. Uh, I thought maybe you were gonna go strip club with that. I I know that that's sometimes a term for uh, adult oh, entertainment yeah. places. Some, so. some hot ladies. No, my mind went to Hulk Hogan. So thanks a lot, this podcast, for making me relive <laughs> No Holds Barred. Rip them. <laughs> Ooh, and rip them, they will, those rippers. I'm sure you've got lots to say about them when we get to them. I sure do. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. (laughs) And I'm Nolan. And today, even though it's not Noel's birthday, we are discussing Tank Girl. So take it away, Noel. We're going to switch things up today, and we're going to talk about a good movie. Um, (laughs) We're... We're going to watch a classic piece of cinematic mastery starring the untouchable Lori Petty. I feel like she got touched a lot in this movie, actually. I don't know. Oh, actually, she did quite a bit. Uh, It does have iced tea. And I mean, maybe the biggest and best actor in here is Malcolm McDowell. Who we have just recently spent some time with back when we watched Cat People only a few episodes ago. I tell you, if you need a creep for a movie, Malcolm McDowell is a good name to call. He is not afraid to get in there and really fucking disturb some people. (laughs) I was wondering if he was going to, at some point, turn into an animal after banging someone, but it didn't happen. Yeah, I wonder how he kind of locked down that niche. Like, obviously, A Clockwork Orange set him up for that success, but do you think they, like, searched around to find the creepiest guy they could and put him in that role, and then it sort of locked him in forever? I think if you have that look... Hollywood just kind of finds you. Like, Michael Shannon's a great example right now. Dude's just creepy as fuck. Like, it's easy to throw him in stuff. People used to say the same thing about Kevin Spacey. He turned out to be creepy in real life, but, you know, for a while there, he had a good little movie streak going. Yeah, I was thinking of Ron Howard's brother. <laughs> the Ice Cream Man, Clint Howard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Clint Howard kind of had a look that got pulled into everything, too, so. Sure. You know what? The fact that we are discussing so many other movies and actors, to me, indicates exactly what the tone of this podcast is going to be. I will be actively trying to avoid talking about this piece of shit movie. (laughs) I think you're just trying to fill this because there's not enough to say about it because it's so tremendous that we're just going to have to do some classic padding, as you would describe it, to uh, get us to our traditional length podcast here because this thing is just so spectacular. I mean, we are coming off a short episode last week with They Live, but I'm I'm not prepared to start padding our podcast. I'm anti-padding in all forms. Before we do get to the various uh, fucking strange, strange details of this movie, though, we always pair a beer with the movie that we are discussing. And this week we have not our best connection, but I think this is kind of okay. What do we have this week, Noel? Yeah, I think it works for a connection here. We have, uh, we're watching Tank Girl, and this is the Tank House Organic Pale Ale. Uh, Tank House is another term for the place where all of the brewing materials are at a brewery. Uh, This is from the Mill Street Brewing Company. So often we stick with the um, craft breweries. And I would say that Mill Street Craft Brewery was actually one of the first I ever visited and had. I used to crush this beer. I have had, I I can't even tell you how many Tank House along with their organic lager. Um, I have crushed a whole ton of these. Hang on a second. I'm a little confused because you drinking lagers? I don't think so. This does not check out at all. (laughs) Actually, my gateway to drinking beer was probably the Mill Street Organic Lager. Just a tremendously crushable, easy drinking brew. Kind of reminds me of the Miller High Life that we crushed last week, which is funny. 
so Mill Street was one of the first craft breweries in Ontario, or certainly one of the ones that was most successful in the sort of Canadian craft boom. They're out of Toronto. Uh, they're in a really cool old space. Uh, it's called the Distillery District, uh, down where they used to brew other liquors. And they built this awesome brewery. And they were serving people all over Ontario. They also have a sweet space in Ottawa, too, right off the river. They have a really awesome brew house, brew pub there. Uh, definitely worth visiting both of them. Uh, in some ways, unfortunate. Good for the owners of Mill Street because they made a ton of cash. But in terms of uh, independent brewing, bought out by uh, one of the large brewing conglomerates. Oh, this is so common now. Though. This happens all the time with craft breweries, right? Like Sierra Nevada is a famous example in the States. I'm trying to think of more... Goose Island. I think it's more common in the U.S. I'd say Mill Street is one of the examples of a Canadian one that has done it. They were one of the biggest Canadian ones, so I guess it's not super surprising. I bet there's a couple BC ones that have done the same. Steam Whistle? Steam Whistle, yeah. Did they get bought out? Who purchased them? I don't know. I just assumed they had because you were shitting all over them in our very first episode. <laughs> I just don't love uh, Pilsner. But uh, so they 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 sold out. Uh, I think the big companies, just like in our uh, They Live movie, got to them. The aliens sort of. Oh my God! You're still on circle. this. We got to move past it. Come on! You alienated so many listeners last week. Ah, <laughs> uh, love it. So we're gonna get back to the comedy. No, I'm excited to drink this. Um, what I like is what happened here is they kept all the Mill Street beers and they still were making new ones under their label. At least they didn't change the recipes and it still diversifies the offerings of the kind of beers out there. So happy to drink this. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I wonder if I remember it. I haven't drank it in a while, um, probably since they were sold. Um, but uh, let's get into it. Absolutely. Let's try it. So we get some extremely comic booky opening credits. There is obviously a strong punk rock influence here as well, as we see the names of dozens of people who most likely never worked again. And as we fade in on a post-apocalyptic wasteland, we are greeted by a Lori Petty voiceover. Uh, does this thing have a narrator? Fuck. <laughs> I am right into this again immediately. This fucking sweet, high-intensity comic book art intro with just some awesome music to keep it pumping. Hearing Lori Petty's sweet, sweet, beautiful voice pop in and start telling me where this world has gone and where we are is setting the perfect tone for me. No, I thought you were anti-narrator. We talked about this back when we watched The Serpent and the Rainbow. Narrators in movies are very cringe, and that's what I immediately felt here. Well, you're anti-narrator, and I mean, I'm on board sometimes. When it's Sean Connery or Laurie Petty, though, I mean, how can you say no? <laughs> Sean Connery is rolling over in his grave right now with the fact that you just compared him to... Wait, is he dead? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I thought he passed away. Maybe not. All right, whatever. He's rolling over in his bed then. They do not belong in the same sentence. I don't like it. Uh, apparently, we find out a comet smashed into the Earth, resulting in the scenery we have here. Obviously, after this happened, human existence turned into a free-for-all. We quickly learn that a group called the Water and Power Corporation, or W&P as they're known, have assumed command by taking control of the Water and Power. Uh, and there's also a group out there called the Rippers, who we already mentioned, who supposedly have never been seen by anyone. Any bets on whether that'll change by the end of the movie? <laughs> I mean, I don't have to bet. I've seen this tons of time. We're going to meet the Rippers, and you're going to be blown away by it. Um I will say this meteor effect that leads to this post-apocalypse is real shit. It looks pretty bad. Um, we got a sweet song going on, though. It's hilarious that we're in 2033. We're about 10 years out from this. Um, and 
it's hard to think that this is where we could end up. If this is where we're going to end up in 10 years, just fucking kill me now. Let's just get it over with. Before we get to meet the Rippers, we spend some time getting to know our other characters. There's Tank Girl's boyfriend, Richard. It's his birthday, and it sure seems like it'll be a happy one after she gets him to strip down via some role play. But he's immediately cock-blocked by two kids who also live there. I have no idea what their names are. It's not important. And after a short scene establishing their vaguely idyllic commune life, we also get to meet our big bad for the movie. That's Malcolm McDowell playing the head of the WNP, Kessley. He comes in hot with an immediate villain monologue. Adam was dust until God injected him with life. And do you know what was in that injection? Water. Water is life. Water is power. Imagine the world's creepiest science teacher. <laughs> he is kind of giving off those vibes for sure. They control 95% of the desert and all of the water, but that's clearly not enough for him. He needs 100% control here. He gets really dark really quick. What happens here when uh, one of his sort of goons fail him? We're getting very Star Warsy vibes here, by the way. You're getting kind of like Darth Vader-esque kind of material. I'm not comparing them in the same league. I'm saying that's what it feels uh, this like. This is the yeah. second ridiculous comparison you've made since we started. I'm just saying. Uh, yes, you're right. What sounds like it's going to be a celebratory speech quickly turns dark, like you said, because he does not want most of the water. He wants all the water, and he breaks a bunch of glass for emphasis, then makes this guy, who I guess is a captain of this army, walk across the broken glass just so he can stab him in the back with a device that, and I'm not kidding, sucks all the water out of the captain's body. Wow. <laughs> This device is one of the ways that water and power, one, controls people, and two, make sure they get as much of that liquid out of the planet as possible. I will say the effect of it filling and turning into water, I kind of like as the bottle spreads out, but the effect of his skin as the water drains out of it is not so good. Oh, no, it's like they let the air out of a balloon. It just kind of, like, sinks down towards itself. It's real shitty. I should mention that just to prove how evil he is, Kesley drinks the captain's body water. Ugh. After walking across a floor full of glass, yeah, too. Why is he walking on the glass? I don't get it. He's trying to show that he's a badass. It doesn't matter to him. Well, he is, I guess. From there, we get a useless scene of Tank Girl on watch. She pretends to be dead to scare the little girl and then lectures her on the importance of using proper curse words. Sometime later, she performs a seductive clothes-cutting routine for her boyfriend by the fire. Unfortunately, those approaching footsteps she heard did not belong to her boyfriend. It turns out the water and power crew is there to arrest them for something. Stealing water, I guess? So yeah, there's a couple things here. One, I did kind of like the transition between McDowell and the Tank Girl character. They do a lot of comic book transitions. So they like cut them in as they move through, and it kind of connects you back to the comic strip. I guess this was a British comic strip in the 80s and 90s that had a lot of popularity, which is what inspired the movie. Um, and then I guess it's already come back again since 2007. It's gained some traction and it's getting a bunch of uh, heat again. They took a little time off there in between when this movie came out and now. <laughs> I think people rediscovered the movie and it uh, brought them to, uh, <laughs> to, to reading again. They wanted to bring it back, which was hilarious. Did you notice what her makeup was like when she was in there on watch? What her makeup was like? I thought her look in general, it almost looked kind of like a prototype Harley Quinn kind of deal. Okay, I, I can see that. I think she was dressed like McDowell's character in A Clockwork Orange. 
Oh. She had the hat and she had the makeup. I think they were throwing an homage to McDowell here. I think they were throwing in some of those sort of, um, what do we call those? Uh, Illusions? Yeah, that's not what I mean, but that's okay. Easter eggs. Yes, yes. I think they were throwing in some Easter eggs there for people. I mean, it's very possible. Uh, so they're there to arrest her or whatever. She quickly uses her feminine wiles to draw one guy in, then blows him up with a grenade in comedic fashion. But that's about as good as this is going to go for her, as she's quickly overwhelmed and the WMP guys kill her boyfriend and pet ox. Also, are they in Australia? And if so, have they been there the whole time? I thought you said it was British. I am a little confused on the location, too. I don't know if, for some reason, post-apocalypse... Everyone in the world has made it to this weird small desert area because there's definitely some Australian voices. There's definitely American voices. There's a weird mix of stuff when we get to our rippers later. So I'm not quite sure. Um, What I did love was some of the music backing both her scissor cutting scene and this action. We get some great 90s like grunge music coming in to set the tone here. I think a lot of what drives my feelings about this movie are the soundtrack that keeps it moving throughout. I know exactly why you love this movie, and I'm going to reveal it at the end of this podcast. I figured it out about 20, 30 minutes in. I was like, oh, I get it. I know why he loves this. Um, The W&P guys transport her by plane to their compound. One of them decides to whip out some misogyny on the way there and also is And I thought the way she handled this was pretty good. Well, what are you waiting for? I'm going to need a a microscope and tweezers. It's like a... That's kind of funny. He ends up hitting her, so she breaks his neck. Turns out that's the eighth one of Kesley's guys she's killed, which inexplicably causes him to start speaking in rhymes. (laughs) Yeah, um, this scene is funny. I like the way she deals with it. Uh, It clearly shows how deadly she is. She uses her feet to snap his neck. Um... This really does set off our McDowell character. He's really upset, and like you said, he goes on another diatribe. I didn't notice the rhyming, but I did notice how ridiculous it was. I'm also starting to notice, as they're getting taken here, how sci-fi-y this is. There's a ton of science fiction elements going into this, and I find it kind of interesting. I I wouldn't say good, but I would say that there's definitely some interesting sci-fi attempts going on here. God, you are like slow playing the cell on this, but I'm not. You're not going to get me. I'm not going to get there. Uh, he is speaking in rhyme. She mentions uh, poetry, him like speaking in poems or whatever. But poetry aside, he's impressed with her fighting skills, so he offers her a job. She's not interested, but he figures that'll change after some hard labor. Little does he know that all time in the prison camp is going to do is give Tank Girl the chance to meet someone who will help her, and that someone is a very mousy Naomi Watts. Not exactly the badass character I was expecting. I think it's interesting. So they put her to work um, immediately when she doesn't agree to be there. So she is digging holes and laying pipe, right? That's what's going on. She's just putting that down there. As they have hole playing in the background, I thought that was kind of funny as their choice of soundtrack as she was doing that. And then after she meets Naomi Watts, we get a very interesting shower scene. Uh, She actually showers before meeting her, but the shower, they have to conserve water, eggs, water's a premium. So she showers in like... It looks like that, like, delousing powder. Yeah, I think you're right. Instead of actually using water, because they can't, they have to conserve it, it's that powder that cleans you off. So this movie is interesting in that I think the comic and this has a lot of innuendo. There is no, like, direct sex in it, but we got a lot of sexual jokes or innuendo and even sexuality here in this, like, clothed shower scene with this delousing powder. 
this scene kills me. Like, it just completely pulls me in. I mean, you mentioned the innuendo. You did say she was just digging holes and laying pipes. So, and speaking of, she actually meets Naomi Watts when Tank Girl overhears one of the guards trying to force himself on her. Tank Girl comes to her rescue by pretending they're lesbians. And later that night, Jet returns the favor when Lori Petty nearly gets herself gassed trying to start an unguarded tank while an instrumental version of the theme from Shaft plays. Turns out she really likes tanks, so I guess it's not just a clever name, you know? No, she's all about it. Both the length and girth of their barrels and their explosiveness. <laughs> you think the theme from Shaft was not a coincidence for this? Uh... Oh, absolutely not. I wondered if you'd pull that out. Uh, I laughed really hard when I realized that it was the Shaft theme. It took me, like, too long, but I realized it before it was out. It's just the music, no lyrics. If Isaac Hayes' vocals had come in, I probably would have peed myself. <laughs> Kesley sees all of this, and he decides to use their budding relationship to break Tank Girl's spirit, or so he thinks. So he starts fucking with Jet, that's Naomi Watts' character's name, they're also going to start ratcheting up the torture on Tank Girl. After your run-of-the-mill straitjacketing and beating, Kesley sends her down something called the pipe, which is, you guessed it, a big pipe. Only it gets narrower and narrower the further you go, so she ends up getting stuck, which causes her to launch to some kind of panic-induced freakout. Yeah, we get some crazy hallucinations here, and we get a lot of, like, comic animation. I think we're getting a lot of homage to the actual comic strip here. They're trying to take material from that and, like, embed it into the movie. Yeah, they go to that a lot, yeah. Yeah, they do that a lot, and I think that's where it's easy to have um, a lot of challenges with the way that this feels and plays out because it is so over the top. It is extremely, extremely excessive in everything that it does. Oh, that's for sure. Speaking of excessive, I guess the Rippers are out there ripping it up. They destroyed a water and power outpost and are generally just fucking up Kesley's shit. But he's got the perfect idea for how to handle them. He's going to send Tank Girl into a suspected Ripper base after first escape from New Yorking her by placing an explosive in her body and telling her to get to work. I guess this generation calls that suicide squatting. Anyway, how does that plan work out for him? <laughs> Not quite how he hoped. Um, they locate the place where the Rippers were tearing everything up. They really ripped them. We get some <laughs> poor corpses on the ground. I will say that the makeup on most of the dead bodies is pretty rough in this. Yep. Um, do they slide under here, or is there another scene between there and where they slide into the base? Well, this attempted sneak attack ends before it can even get started. The Rippers come from every direction and just slaughter Kesley's guys. Kesley, too, it seems, although since there's an hour of movie left, we know that's not true. And sure enough, we find out he's still alive after taking a brief detour through Cartoon Land with Tank Girl and Jet. This movie is like either the world's longest music video or a hundred tiny music videos put together. I can't figure out which. <laughs> I do agree that music plays a primary role in the feeling of this, and so I understand why you're kind of connecting it to a music video. This does play and feel very much like watching MTV or Much Music for us uh, in the 90s. Something that this generation will never know. Really sad to me, actually. That was one of my greatest joys. I feel a lot of regret for them. I mean, YouTube still has some of that, but it doesn't. it does not do the same thing. Um, it's interesting to me that the Rippers look very much like the Predator. Yeah, they've got the same kind of like masks and almost like the same sort of like, I feel like that's a couple of them, like the dreadlock look sort of go in there and they very much seem like uh, some sort of creature using technology to make itself more deadly. Yeah, I think this is another like place where they're trying to make reference. I think they do that quite a bit. I didn't read the comic, so I'm not sure if they do that in the comic or if this is just something that the director chose. Like, I think it was interesting that the director was female too. Not super common, right? We don't have as many female directors, so I thought, 
um, a lot of the choices kind of were impacted by that. She's actually a professor at UBC for art and film too, which is kind of cool. I heard that this movie set female directors back about 20 years. That's why we didn't have any of this. Is no, boo, no, no. So... Kesley gets messed up here in their attempt to go. We found out later he's not dead, but we see his arm there. His arm's missing. Um, and who's left over is just our two girls. We've got Jet and Tank Girl left over after this ambush from the Rippers. They're kind of looking around at the wreckage, trying to figure out what's happening and what happens to them. Well, uh, they're free now, and Tank Girl suddenly finds a tank that she can call by whistling. Is this real? I don't even know. But what I do know is that her and Jet are only free because Kesley wants them to infiltrate the Blue Dunes. That's the part of the desert that still has water. He even puts word out that that's where the little girl from the start of the movie has been taken, knowing that Tank Girl will try to rescue her. And that's what happens as her and Jet quickly travel to that sexy, sexy place. <laughs> we get a bit of a comic book montage here. We get the music and their like travel in uh, montage kind of form. So I'm really loving this. They do go and find kind of like an informant, and they have a statue from that little girl that they carved at the front, some some woman, and she gives them some of the info and the tools to fucking fix up their vehicles so they're ready to go find that girl and kind of go to a place where they may get ambushed. Yeah, but it takes her literally one minute to get vaguely disguised, sneak in there, and rescue the girl. In fact, we spend more time on some weird fucking show tune performance than we do on this mission. I am shocked by how quickly you're rolling through this section of the film. I thought you would be down or interested in this. They head to essentially the last strip club on Earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said it was a sexy place, man. Yeah, yeah. So they head here to, uh, what is it called? Liquid Silver. There's this whole scene where Lori Petty goes through like all of the outfits and this machine tries to set her up to be a stripper, which is pretty funny. But that scene is 30 seconds long. That's what this whole thing is less than she's in this room trying stuff on, firing off her little fucking one-liners. Then she's just there. Then she's got the girl. It all happens so fast. Well, they have this whole giant Cole Porter uh, performance, right? And that yeah, that's a the show here. tune thing I was talking about. Yeah, it was interesting that they're all singing "Let's Fall in Love" and they have like a line of girls kicking and everything happening while she's threatening to kill someone. It turns out it was all a big setup to capture her, right? And she finds the girl, but in this whole sort of ruckus after it happens, uh, Water and Power have Sam, that little girl, and they're gonna take her so that they can get control of Tank Girl. Yeah, right on cue, they show up, storm the place, grab the girl, and deliver her to Malcolm McDowell and his shiny new robot arm. So now Tank Girl and Jet are going to have to break into the water and power compound, but for that, they're going to need even more help, so they decide to try their luck with the Rippers. They find them right away, which we probably should have expected at this point, but what we couldn't have expected, what no one could have expected, was that the Rippers are a big bunch of kangaroo people. Kangaroo people! <laughs> And even more inexplicably, one of them is played by Ice-T. What the <laughs> fuck is going on? Ah, oh, man. I would have loved to have seen your face when you determined that the Rippers were kangaroo people. Oh, it's awesome. I was worried I gave it away when we were talking about it beforehand, because I think I might have mentioned that there were kangaroo people in this movie, because it's definitely memorable. Um, these Rippers, or the kangaroo people, are the result of a science experiment, almost, to create super soldiers. Uh, someone was working on it, and they combined human and kangaroo DNA to create these kangaroo warrior peoples. The angry one, of course, is Ice-T. Um, I guess at this point, he's pretty well-known and popular. They're trying to get him in here. They even include some of his music coming up in some of the action that's going on. They do, yeah. That actually got a reaction out of me for sure. 
Um, so I was just going to ask you about their their makeup. How did you feel about the kangaroo people's fuck, makeup? Fuck, dude, this looks terrible. They look awful. <laughs> this is some of the worst fucking costume makeup I've ever seen in my life. It's so fucking plastic. It's just awful. How do you feel about the Grinch? I hate that, too. It looks like I've never been a fan of the Grinch. Yeah, I feel like it's the same makeup. Oh, very much. Yeah, the mouth. The mouth area, yeah. That yeah, prosthetic. I feel like that prosthetic is the same one they used on the Grinch, which I, I was interesting to me. I feel like it looked like reasonable, like, approximations of what a kangaroo human would be. Oh, like, my God, dude, come on. <laughs> they don't really show their body as much. They mostly stay, like, shoulder up, so you don't get a ton of look at that. But I actually like that each of them had their own unique kind of, like, makeup and facial style. They were kind of bohemian, a lot of them, too. It was, it was an interesting crew of people they chose to be those rippers. They're living underground in an old bowling alley, which I thought was funny. It was kind of like a Ninja Turtle thing to me is what it felt like. And maybe they are inspired by the Ninja Turtles in some way. Yeah, I could see that. And they try to figure out why Tankerl and Jet are there. This interrogation involves pumping them with laughing gas and iced tea doing iced tea things. They're prisoner stamps. Prisoner, my ass. That's exactly what they want us to think. Or, better yet, that isn't what they want us to think. That way, we'll think what they think we might think, but actually... Booga. Huh? Try not to speak. I wish I could say that Booga guy is an anomaly in the kangaroo crew, but based on the next couple of scenes, it feels like at least 80% of them are complete fucking morons and or super horny. Yeah, it is interesting the personalities they try to give the kangaroo army guys. Booga is different, though, because he was made from a dog and a kangaroo and a human. Like, I think they combined the three of them to create this thing, which is kind of funny. So he's kind of the dumb one. We've got the angry one with iced tea. We've got, a, like, a bohemian poetic one who's kind of their leader. And then we have a super sciencey but also really horny one. Like, very much that stereotype of the nerd who just wants to bone down because they've never seen a t- they all seem horny. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be horny if you were trapped with all other male kangaroos in a bowling alley for the last 10 years? <laughs> I don't know. I can't explain this. This is completely insane. The Rippers need Tanker and Jet to prove that they aren't working for water and power. So they send them on a mission to steal a weapon shipment. And how do they steal that weapon shipment? By pretending to be a photographer and telling the various dock worker types that are making a men of water and power calendar. What year did this come out again? 95? Yeah, yeah. So that means the screenwriters would have gotten their Oscar in early 96. I'm just trying to put this together in my head, the timeline here. I think so. Um, just her using her feminine wilds, or the two of them using their feminine wilds, and convincing these dock workers to pose and take off their shirts as they determine that there are actually weapons there was pretty hilarious to me. I got a good chuckle out of it. Those guys sell it pretty good. You can't tell me those dock worker performances weren't quite excellent. I can tell you that. There are no excellent performances in this movie. I cannot believe this whole thing feels like a troll job on me. Like, I don't even know how you're sitting here trying to defend this with a straight face. But anyway, having gotten past the guys unloading the crates or loading them or whatever they're doing, Tank Girl has to chase down the transport truck that's carrying the weapons. And she manages to disconnect the trailer just in the nick of time before the whole load flew over a cliff. So they've got the guns, and that means it's time to celebrate with a big meal, some dance prayer, and kangaroo jazz. <laughs> I like this little action scene where they steal the guns and head out of there. There's some good comic uh, cuts in here. There is a, a pretty funny moment where she pulls up her tank, and she's like riding on the barrel and tells the guys they're feeling inadequate, which uh, they jump out and have a good chuckle at that. 
she does have that last minute heroics. And I did find this like celebration with poetry, saxophone and strange dancing a bit confusing. I didn't remember this from watching it before. I probably tuned this part out, but it was strange. It turns out that the leader of the kangaroo people, the people who created them, I think his name was Johnny Prophet. He taught them religion and dance and those kind of things. So that was why they were celebrating in that way. So they're doing their sort of celebration after having some dinner. And then it's time to go check out the score. What were they able to uh, pull off those trucks? What guns did they have so they can continue their raid on water and power? Yeah, and we get to that in a second, but before then, I just have to say, and I'm not exaggerating here, I really, really want to turn off the movie at this point. There was one thing that stopped me, though, and that was the constant question of whether or not she was going to f*** one of those kangaroo guys. Still not sure. Still not sure if it happened. (laughs) So, there is, and it's funny because the Laurie Petty character, the Tank Girl character, seems closest to the dog kangaroo one. Booga. Booga. Yeah, the two of them seem to have a bit of a connection. They spend the night, like, staring at the stars together, laying in this room that has stars on the ceiling, and they're talking. And they kind of suggest that maybe something happened, but they don't go into it. Like, they don't explain it or tell you or confirm anything. They leave it completely open. But I definitely had a did they f*** written down in my notes. I wasn't sure. Uh, So it is that weird evening, and then we transition to the next day where they go and check out the shipment. Yeah, and uh, bad news in those guns they stole. The boxes were mostly empty. I say mostly because what they did find inside one of them was the dead body of Johnny Prophet, that guy who genetically engineered them. So that's a bummer, but it is going to motivate them to storm the water and power compound. One tank, Naomi Watts, and a buttload of kangaroo men. What could go wrong? We're about to get some fantastic insanity. Something that does not feel real, right? Like, there's nothing about this movie that feels realistic or possible. It very much leans hard into the unreal and the comic sensibility. And we're taking this kangaroo army and jet girl and tank girl, and they're going to go try to kick ass against Water and Power. But Water and Power is waiting, right? They are waiting for them here. They are, so apparently lots could go wrong. But I'll tell you what could go right. Ice-T providing the soundtrack to his own scene. He's no John DeHart, but I chuckled a little bit when I heard his voice. (laughs) I love the throwback to John DeHart. Um, Definitely singing your own soundtrack is something that everyone has to admire. I wonder how many times Ice-T has sung their own soundtrack to his sex. (laughs) I don't know if uh, the music of Ice-T is necessarily conducive to lovemaking, but uh, you never know. (laughs) Maybe he just has to find the person who likes that kind of tone, I guess. (laughs) Maybe. Anyway, they managed to make their way inside. Kesley has jammed that little girl inside the pipe and is slowly filling it with water. And to get to her, they're going to need to cut the power to the generator because apparently kangaroo men work better in the dark. You know, like Count Chocula. (laughs) The fucking character says. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. They prefer not to be seen. They can pretend to be the Predator character. We have a whole bunch of scenes here where the McDowell character is, like, getting work done on him and kind of hiding. He's had some surgery to transform who he is. So they're going to do a big reveal of the big bad. It also seems that all of them getting in so easily was intentional. He was looking for revenge against the Rippers, and he wanted to take them down himself. So all of this was kind of set up by him. Now we're in the dark, and the Rippers are moving through, and they're they're going to find their way to McDowell. We're going to get a big boss battle, aren't we? Well, no, hang on. We're not in the dark yet. In order to drop the lights, what happens is that jazz-loving leader of the kangaroo men has to bravely sacrifice himself to destroy a generator, and he gives a stirring farewell on his way out the door. No. I see you cats at that big jam in the sky. <laughs> Man, that kangaroo really loved jazz. 
<laughs> oh my god. The the acting and the <laughs> the scream that all of the kangaroos let out to mourn him is fucking hilarious. It is, and it would have immediately given away their position to McDowell's goons, but whatever. Now that the lights are off, the Rippers start dominating, which lets Tank Girl make it to Kessley. But as we know, he's got some new tricks up his sleeve, literally, and the two of them fight it out with what are just some truly awful effects. <laughs> so they're fighting in what must be like the fifth or sixth time we've been in an industrial area with all kinds of metal and other stuff in this podcast. It's the most popular fucking place to fight. I don't know why. It's pretty hilarious. So they're battling it out. She's trying to do damage to him, but he somehow can't be hurt in his head. And he has this like amazing mechanical arm that's super super strong so it's not going great for our tank girl she's looking kind of in trouble but then what does she do to kind of get the upper hand here oh she calls her fucking tank and it shows up and distracts him which lets her get away she ends up launching a bunch of cans at him or something before eventually realizing he's going to keep batting them away with his new arm so she aims at a bucket that's inexplicably hanging right above him and when the liquid spills it shorts out his hologram head Side note, I guess he had a hologram head. And she ends things once and for all by stabbing him with one of those liquid draining things used on his own captain. Why was there a bucket of water there? Irony. The thing that we have the least amount of in this world is the thing that takes out the big bad. I loved it. And I love that she used the thing that he did on his commander earlier to suck all of his life out of him in water. And it's not going to go to waste. They're going to take that evil sack of shit and turn it into a delicious drink. I didn't see. Did she drink it? I didn't see. Uh, She doesn't drink it. Not in front of them. I just assume it's going to get drank. What was frustrating to me here was she knows her like little girlfriend. The whole reason she's here, that Sam kid, is to save her. She's spending an awful lot of time savoring this defeat on the evil guy and not going to go rush and save this girl who is in a precarious situation. She does get there, though. We transition to her getting there in the nick of time. Yeah, that's not the only resolution we get. Uh, Naomi Watts kills that guard who tried to force himself on her. We get this cringy exchange when he realizes she's got a gun aimed at his head. Fuck me. How many times do I have to tell you? I don't want to. And we mercifully wrap things up with Lori Petty making out with a dumb kangaroo man. And of course, more cartoons. <laughs> this is interesting, right? So she is uh, she's back there with her kangaroo bow and they release all the water. It seems like it was dammed up somehow and they kind of blow that dam. And it's kind of insinuating to me that they do have sex. I mean, it's certainly, you, people have used that analogy before for sex, so it's possible. I mean, if nothing else, she's enjoying her victory over Kesley and his fucking goons. <laughs> so we end on Waterfalls and we transition out with a song, another cover of Let's Fall in Love. Again, that Cole Porter song that they did that rendition of, but we get a sweet kind of punk rock version here. Yeah, which fits with the tone that we saw at the beginning. And like I said, I have figured out why you love this movie. This movie is like one big montage. Seriously, is there a single scene that lasts longer than two minutes? I don't think there is. You're right, it might be. This could be the closest thing to a film rendition of a montage. Um, I I mean, obviously, a lot of it's done in animation um, because all of the transitions are there. It moves very fast. It's very ridiculous. Uh, When you compared it to a music video, it definitely feels that way. But to me, that makes it feel like a comic brought to life. Like, I think the source material the tank girl material is quick cuts right it's lots of little quick 
quirky kind of comics. And this feels like a true way to bring that to life to me. I mean, they certainly do. And again, neither of us have read the comic, but they certainly do have a lot of kind of asides where she kind of jumps in. Even her, like the way she peppers out the comments and the jokes really quickly, which by the way, none of them are fucking funny. She's not funny in this. This movie's not funny. I have so many complaints. We really should just get to our ratings because I'm just dying to shit all over this thing if that hasn't been made abundantly clear in this podcast. So the way we always do this, we rate the movie on a scale of 1 to 10 two times, 1 to 10 for how bad it is, 1 to 10 for how enjoyable, and the goal is to find movies that are a 10 out of 10 on both scales, or what we call the Crit 20. And this is definitely in play for me. I mean, not really, but like technically it's in play uh, because this is 100% 10 out of 10 bad. Lori Petty in A League of Their Own, tremendous charming cute you want to root for her. Lori petty and point break kind of weird strange casting doesn't matter enough to ruin things Lori petty in this annoying as fuck and i'm sure that some of that is the script and the direction but how did no one realize this wasn't working like the whole movie in general i don't understand how this got released did nobody from the studio watch a fucking cut before they put this out you'd think at some point somebody would get a look at those kangaroo men and be like nope shut it down uh speaking of all of the effects in this movie are bad, but these fucking kangaroo men, everything about them is laughable. The effects, the individual characters they assign them, the weird dancing and inclusion of jazz. I'm sure this seemed like a good idea on paper. Actually, no, I'm not sure this seemed like a good idea on paper. It's so fucking weird, and maybe they thought it would get them some attention, but whatever this mishmash of styles and genres is, it does not work as a movie. I am dumbfounded, dumbfounded by how bad this all is. Like I said, I have it as a 10, but if I could give it an 11, I would. You're so, so wrong. This isn't even close to a 10. It doesn't even approach a 10. I think this does exactly what it intended to. I think all of the choices that you're angry at are ones that were intentional to hit the feeling and theme of the comic. And Sorry, I think can I that- jump in here for one second? You have not read the comic. You said this yourself. This is all speculation on your part. <laughs> but... It feels very much like a comic come to life. Like the whole kind of theme of it, the overacting, all of the ridiculousness feels that way. Are there things that are overdone and feel difficult to watch? Absolutely. Um, and does some of it age kind of poorly? For sure. Um, the sound effects are kind of over the top. And the acting is incredibly dialed. Like it's way over there. But I think all of those were intentional choices. Um, and obviously, you know how I feel about this movie. I It's the only movie of our podcast that I own. And you just described it as a full-length montage. So you're going to have a feeling of where I'm going to go later. I only have this as a six bad. I am oh, not even close to a God in this. heaven. Six bad. Six bad. This is only a six bad. It is nowhere near a ten. Some of the movies we have watched this season are just way out of the league. You're putting this in the league of Champagne and Bullets? Yes. I think in some ways, this is worse than Champagne and Bullets. Oh, my God. The only thing that Champagne and Bullets did better was fucking guy singing his own songs over top of his own sex scenes. The production quality on this is way higher. The music and mood integration is amazing. I love all the transitions with comics. I think that the Lori Petty character, you hate it on her, but I think she does a really good job of embracing this tank girl role. I feel like the McDowell character is a little bit thin, and he plays it a little bit too far. But otherwise, I really, really like this. I can see where the Rippers are weird and annoying, but I think 
that that is something that like that exists in the comic and that is how they were depicted and they're just bringing that to life. I just want to jump in here with some examples of movies that you have said are worse than this because you said this is a six bad. So here are some movies you said are worse than this movie. Back to the Future Part 2. Yep. Flash Gordon. Yes. Karate Kid Part 2. Absolutely. Under Siege. Oh, God, yeah. Coffee. That one's a hard one. I actually think Coffee might be a better movie than this. What did I rate Coffee as? Uh, seven. No, eight. You said eight bad for Coffee. Yeah, I was probably too harsh on Coffee, although some of the effects in that movie are horrible, but the tone and the acting of Pam Greer is amazing in that film. Okay, what about Starship Troopers? Oh, yeah, this is better than Starship Troopers. I don't even I don't even know what to say to this. You believe this movie is as bad as Roadhouse. I think I should get to my enjoyability rating and then we're going to get to yours. I I just I cannot believe what I'm hearing, but that's fine. So, so, sure, you know what? Sure. If you're going to just brush all these off and act like Tank Girl is a better movie or as good as all of the ones I have named, that's fine. It is. How enjoyable is. did you find this movie on a scale of 1 to 10? Um incredibly fun. I really enjoyed it. The pace is incredible. The innuendos are really fun. I enjoy some of the sensibility and the comedy, despite you not enjoying it. I enjoyed the Lori Petty character. I enjoyed the Naomi Watts character. The music was incredible. You are a bit of a soundtrack whore. I can see you getting sucked in by the music. I am, I am absolutely. I think the soundtrack is what made me watch this movie. I'm pretty positive that I actually listened to the soundtrack first, and then I was like, I have to see where all of this sweet music came from. And then I watched the movie, and I was like, fuck yes. Right? This introduced me to some of my favorite bands and songs, and so... I feel like that is being true, and it held up for me. There's shit I watched oh earlier on this podcast that I loved when I was a kid, and it did not hold up. This brought back the same feelings, and I still felt the same way. I had this as a nine enjoyable. Good God, man. I would watch it again right now. Again. I would literally go watch it happily right now. If they sell more DVDs of Tank Girl, do you get residuals? Did you like work on this movie, and I'm not aware of it or something? What is this fucking stump speech you're out here giving... For this piece of shit of a movie. I wish it did. I wish I worked on it. I wish I got royalties. I wish I did the sound and music for it. Whoever did. Sorry, some of the sound was overblown. But I wish I did the music oh, for this. Oh, sorry. There, There's the big criticism, everyone. Some of the sound was overblown. There's Noel's Nil, scathing review of one <laughs> of the worst movies and biggest fucking bombs of all time. Some of the sound was overblown. All right, man. I don't even know what to say. I think this is fucking ridiculous. Part of me still thinks you're just trolling me, but that's fine. You go ahead and enjoy this. Uh, for my enjoyment, I said there was a point where I wanted to shut this movie off, and that was true. But before that, there were several other points where I looked at the clock and fucking groaned. This movie sucked so hard. It wasn't even fun as a curiosity. Like, don't get me wrong. I was a little curious before I watched it, but that evaporated faster than the water dare of that fucking comet hit the earth. <laughs> Everything else I'm going to say about this, I already mentioned in the bad section. Lori Petty's character is super fucking annoying. The effects suck. The jumping back and forth between regular scenes and cartoon scenes is jarring and unpleasant. And the kangaroo people are fucking nightmare fuel. <laughs> this was a miserable failure across the board, and I will never, ever watch it again. 
I have this as a one enjoyable, and if I could give it a what? zero, I would. So thanks, Noel. Great suggestion. One enjoyable? I would give it a zero if I could. This movie blows ass. Holy shit. I don't know what kind of mood you were in going to this, but you weren't prepared. You did not see this in a correct space. I cannot believe that you rated this as fun as Batman and Robin. Are you fucking kidding me? I would rather watch Batman and Robin again than this. Yes, I'm on the record. You pull out all the ones I've given for enjoyable, I will choose them over this movie every time. This is the worst movie that I have had to watch as part of this podcast. Notice I said had to watch. Never again. Boo, Tank Girl. Boo. That is absolutely insane. I can't even believe that's coming to your mouth. It's making me question our friendship. <laughs> that's funny because you owning this DVD is making me question our friendship. <laughs> I mean, I guess as the non-movie person, as the layman here, um, maybe our tastes are very, very different. I am not as bougie as you are when it comes to <laughs> films, so it's it's difficult, right? You're... you're Films taste and my beer taste kind of are on the like same platform. And so <laughs> same this, is, uh, this is where it is. I'm <laughs> watching the Everyman movie. Uh, you just hate Everyman That's movies. That's the most and... ridiculous argument. You know how much low budget shit I love. Stop it. I think what we've got here is just a classic. Like this movie got you at a certain point in time where it resonated with you for some reason. You mentioned viewing it in the right kind of environment. Listen, man, if I had built a time machine and got back to 1995 and watched it in the theater, it would have been pretty much the same as me watching it at home. It would have been fucking empty. It would have been just me in there anyway. So, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I don't know where you're coming from with this. I thought this was fucking awful. Well, how about the beer? That was not awful. Um, I was a little confused because this says pale ale on the can. This, to me, felt more like a standard kind of like ale, like a brown ale. I think you're right. Um, I think the style of pale ales has changed since they put this out. Um, and this is definitely a darker, malty, very traditional forward, like flavored ale. I like this beer. I've drank it tons of times. Um, the thing that spoils me on this beer is Mill Street does the thing where they also turn some of their beers into liquor. They make schnapps out of their beers and they have a tank house flavored schnapps. And there was a time after celebrating too much um, from a baseball game and or tournament where I consumed an entire bottle of Tank House schnapps, and it was very fun, but also resulted in me being very sick. <laughs> I would do it, I guess. Uh, so I was not well the next day, and so in some ways I have a bit of a negative uh, memory connection to that, although I did enjoy drinking it tonight. I had no problems with it. If you're looking for a more multi-flavored ale and you have the offerings of Mill Street, definitely grab the Tank House. If anyone, uh, like, put it this way. If you are looking for a pale ale, do not pick this up. Ignore what it says in the can. You're not going to find what we would now consider a traditional pale ale. You agree? Yeah, I think so. I think you would definitely go to a different brewery for that. But if you're looking for um, like a maltier, a caramely kind of darker ale, then the Mill Street Tank House Organic Pale Ale is a good choice. Yeah, and I enjoyed it. We've had a couple of brown ales in the course of this podcast, and I would put this one right there beside those ones. Pretty good. Now, what may not be good is next week's movie selection. Next week, we're going to be watching a little film called 10 to Midnight. <laughs> uh, is it about erections? Are we no, watching that, a movie about erections? It's called 10 to Midnight. Uh, <laughs> no. this is a... I'm always at a 10. You don't live your life at a 10? <laughs> what? Like fucking 5, 6 erect? What? Anyway, this so is a... This good to me. <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, 80s police 
fucking thriller starring our friend Charles Bronson. Haven't been on the Bronson rabbit hole in a while. Oh, shit. We're back with Bronson? We are. Now, if you can believe it, he's playing a uh, burnout cop who's on a one-man war against crime. (laughs) No way. There's no way I could believe that. Who's his way-too-young female love interest in this? (laughs) I actually don't know if he has one in this. Yeah, I think what happens is, I think his daughter gets murdered or something, and this sets him off. It's your kind of standard Bronson fare, but with a little bit of a serial killer twist. So... I just thought it'd been a while since we'd seen Bronson. Why not? I love him. I feel like Murphy's Law was a good one for us. So we'll jump back in with some 10 to midnight. But before then, if you have not already, please follow us on social media at the BMB podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to send us an email, if you want to tell Cooper how wrong he is about Tank Girl, the BMB podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, if you want to tell me how wrong I am about Tank Girl. We're going to fucking have to go work this out with like a therapist, I think, or a whole team of therapists. While we're doing that, we hope you will join us next week for 10 to midnight. Until then, I'm Cooper. And I'm Nolan. And we'll see you next time on Bad Movies and Beer. Cooper keeps it petty. Tom Petty. No, I meant like petty as in like cheap and uh, dirty. And, uh... <laughs> in the future, the odds of survival are a thousand to one. That's just the way she likes it.